Are you ready to jump into some true crime docs, crime thrillers, and more? Check out our website for an extensive list of our favorite movies and shows at thesirenspodcast.com slash watch, and find our favorite true crime and thriller books and authors, some covered on the show, at thesirenspodcast.com slash author alley. You can even find special deals for Amazon Music, Audible, Discovery Plus, Paramount Plus, Showtime, and even Grubhub. If you're looking to jump in immediately, check out our pinned Facebook post for some streaming service free trials on us. You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. Let's get into McVeigh, what it was doing when all of this happened. As they were searching, the the search and rescue teams were going through things. Within three hours of the bombing, they had actually found the rear axle of the Ryder truck that held the bomb. They turned it over to the FBI and they got really lucky because the axle actually had a VIN number on it, which that of all the parts of the truck, of all of the parts, they found the axle with a VIN number on it. There's some kind of fate working there. Mm-hmm. FBI identified it as a rider rental truck. They followed the VIN number. They saw that it was rented from Junction City, Kansas. So they decided to go to Kansas to where this place was rented at. Junction City is like right by Manhattan and Fort Riley, where he was, by the way. Yeah. So when they got to Kansas, they visited Elliot's Body Shop, which is where the truck was rented from. And the man who rented this truck out gave FBI a description. However, the name used to rent the truck was Robert Kling. K-L-I-N-G. Sounds like a very odd alias to have. Yeah, who are you, Robert? They decided that they would start searching nearby area hotels. They actually came across a motel called Dreamland Motel. And the motel manager there, whose name was Leah, told them that a man with a rider truck had rented a hotel room from her. They asked to look at the check-in ticket and get this... Even though he had used Robert Kling to rent the truck, Timothy McVeigh had used his real name to check into this motel. I seriously think that he wanted recognition. Oh, yeah. He wanted them to know who it was. It's so dumb. He's so dumb. Like, if, you're, if, you, if you want people to know, just use your real name all over the place. But anyway. With the name now known, they knew they were looking for a Timothy McVeigh. They decided to do an arrest check to see if they could, like, if he maybe had a record, they could get a recent address or something like that. And they found that McVeigh was actually in jail at that exact moment in Noble County, Oklahoma. (laughs) How insane is that? This is the only good part. The only good part of any of this. He had actually been sitting in a jail cell in Perry, Oklahoma, Noble County, since the afternoon of the bombing. And it wasn't even that like an hour after the bombing. An hour, hour and a half. Yeah, he was like almost to Kansas, I think, or something. Well, I have here an hour and 17 minutes. I don't know how precise that is, but whatever. That's very specific. (laughs) It's pretty specific, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, he was actually driving on I-35 in Noble County in his getaway car, his gross yellow 1977 Mercury Marquis, and he was stopped by Oklahoma State Trooper Charles Hanger. Up until this point, McVeigh claims he thought that he had made a clean getaway. Hanger had passed McVeigh's car and noticed that it had no license plate on it. And here's the thing about that. Hanger actually was on his way to help 
because they had called in all kinds of personnel for the bombing itself. And he was actually on his way to lend a hand at the bombing. He had said later in like an interview or whatever that he really seriously debated on pulling this car over because he was like right at the exit to where he would have exited to go towards Oklahoma City. And he was almost like, man, this is like a big deal. I need to get down there and I need to help. Do I need to even mess with this car that has no license plates or whatever? And he ultimately, for whatever reason, made the decision to go ahead and stop the car. So when he did stop the car, he asked McVeigh to get out of the vehicle. And he noticed that there was like this large bulge under McVeigh's jacket. And McVeigh like kind of just like knew he'd been caught or whatever. And so he straight out admitted to the state trooper that he had a gun. So he arrested McVeigh for driving without a license plate and for having an illegal firearm, like illegal firearm possession because McVeigh had a concealed weapon permit, but it wasn't legal in Oklahoma. According to the people who booked McVeigh in jail, he was calm, unassuming, and not nervous at all. So McVeigh kind of thought that they still weren't on to him, that they were just booking him in for this thing, and, you know, he wasn't worried about it at all. It was during the booking at the courthouse that he saw on TV the extent of his damage for the first time. His first reaction, and this is a quote, was, damn, I didn't take the building completely down. I just want to kill him 168 times. Yeah. He waits all day to be identified as the bomber and nothing happens. When he was booked in, get this, when he was booked in, he was wearing a t-shirt at the time with a picture of Abraham Lincoln on it. Underneath it, it had the motto, Sic Semper Tyrannus, which means thus always to tyrants, supposedly is the words shouted by John Wilkes Booth after he shot Lincoln. On the back of the shirt was a tree and then like blood dropping out of the tree and a Thomas Jefferson quote that said, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. I don't understand why he thought this was justice. I don't understand how he doesn't see himself as a massive hypocrite. How are you going to sit there and say that what the what the military and the government and the police, whatever, what they did at Waco, how is that any worse than what the hell you just did? Mm-hmm. You're that mad about it that you're just going to fight fire with fire. Two wrongs don't make a right. It doesn't make it okay. You did not. He's got a quote somewhere, and I, I don't know what I did with it, but it's something like... Uh... His quote about Waco was like, you think it's okay to attack women and children. And then here you are doing the exact same thing. So yeah, I'm right there with you. I don't understand how people can't see how contradictory they are. So two days later, he sits in jail for two days. McVeigh is finally identified as the subject of the nationwide manhunt. He claims that all of these mistakes that like I was saying, like, why would you use your real name here and not there? He claims that all of those were not mistakes at all but or oversights, but they were done on purpose to ensure that if it came down to him being killed during apprehension or being accidentally blown up by the bomb itself, he would be able to be identified and be known as the OKC bomber. So you were right on the money with that, by the way. He had anticipated suicide by cop. He says, quote, I, in fact, may be, in a sense, a groundbreaker for suicide by cop. And the reason why I call myself a groundbreaker is because I knew all of this before it happened. I knew that my objective was state-assisted suicide. And when it happens, in your face, motherfucker. In other words, I'm manipulating the system for my own gain. If you put it on a scoreboard, it's 168 to 1. I sit here today content that there's no way that they can beat me. He's literally sitting here putting these deaths on a scoreboard. Saying, I killed 168 people and you're only going to kill one, so I win. Yeah, because that's better. That makes sense. So he was arraigned... Like for the um, the crimes that he was pulled over for, he was actually about to get out of jail when they identified him. 
as the Oklahoma City bomber. He was like, like literally about to walk out the door and someone slips the judge a note like, hey, yo, uh, don't don't let him go anywhere. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what happened. He was like an hour away from being let out and they were like, hey, uh, maybe just hold him for a minute. He would have been in the wind. Like, I don't know if they would have been able to find him if they had let him go, honestly. Oh my God, I know. Maybe eventually, maybe, but... It would have taken a while. There would have been like this massive manhunt. Anyway, when investigators initially interviewed him, they showed him pictures of the carnage to try to get him to talk. He said, quote, they showed me pictures of dead babies and tried to get me to talk to make me feel bad or something, but it didn't work. I kept a straight face and I said I want an attorney, unquote. I, just, I don't understand how you could have no emotion toward that. That's like a sign of guilt to me. Because who in their right mind is shown a picture of quote-unquote dead babies and have no emotional reaction to it? That keyword is in the right in their right mind. Yeah, no shit. But he bounces back and forth like he's he's sorry for the people he's killed, and then he's proud of the people he's killed, and then he's proud of what's happening in his rearview mirror. And then he's remorseful that there's children involved. And then he's like, oh, well, children die every day. It's like, what the fuck? Does it just change according to who you're talking to or what day of the week it is or if it's after 2 p.m. or what? I really don't know. I don't either. I will say that when they looked at his driver's license because they wanted an address on him to see if he had any other bomb making equipment in his home. The address on his driver's license was actually the address for Decker, Michigan, which was James Nichols' home, who was the brother of Terry Nichols. So on his driver's license wasn't even like, I guess that's just where he had claimed to be living at the time. Agents, of course, went to that address, to the home of James Nichols, and Terry Nichols at the time was not living there with James anymore. He was living in Harrington, Kansas. Because police believed both of these men were involved, they got a search warrant. In Terry's home, they found a receipt for 2,000 pounds of fertilizer. They also found a calling card in the name of Daryl Bridges, who shared the same address in Decker, Michigan. So they traced calls back and forth and found a trail of calls placed to acquire materials for the bomb building. That's when they also found out about Michael Fortier. Mm -hmm. That same afternoon, James and Terry Nichols were arrested. Terry cooperated with the authorities like almost immediately. And then Michael Fortier was arrested as well. On August 10th, 1995, Timothy McVeigh was indicted on 11 federal counts, including conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction, use of a weapon of mass destruction, destruction with the use of explosives, and eight counts of first-degree murder. Now, I know what you're thinking. What about, like, why are we not hearing 168, right? Mm -hmm. So here's how it goes. They wanted to charge him federally deaths that were not federal agents were separated and those were categorized under the Oklahoma court district. So they basically extracted the the federal employees that he killed and that's what the federal courts charged him with. So basically Oklahoma is sitting back waiting to see what happens with the federal trial and then we'll determine if they want to charge him in their courts. On February 20th, 1996, the court granted a change of venue and ordered that the case be transferred from Oklahoma City to the, the U.S. District Court in Denver, Colorado, like the federal court. The trial of Timothy McVeigh, April 24th, 1997, two years after the bombing, the U.S. Department of Justice had brought federal charges against him for causing the deaths of eight federal officers, leading to a possible death penalty. They could not bring charges against McVeigh for the remaining 160 murders in federal court because those deaths fell under the jurisdiction of the state of Oklahoma. McVeigh instructed his lawyers to use a necessity defense. I don't know if you know what a necessity defense is, but it basically means 
he wanted them to say that he was in immediate danger and had to defend himself against the government. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously, his lawyer was smart enough to be like, um, no, we can't do that. That's not what you did here, you idiot. Yeah. And and he's, he, like, proclaimed that that's what it was. That it was in self-defense, that he was under attack by the government. But his attorney was like, okay, well, we have to basically be able to, pr- to prove imminent danger from the government. And we cannot do that in this case. He also wanted them, his lawyers, to present the jury with the controversial video Waco the big lie which is a a conspiracy theory video of what happened at Waco he wanted them to present that to the jury and his lawyers were like um no to that as well that's unnecessary Michael Fortier testified against him in his trial it was pretty damning And so was Terry Nichols' testimony. They both just kind of said exactly what happened. They didn't try to cover anything up. They let it all out there. Michael Fortier even said he felt really guilty about not warning anyone about the plans. He said, for the most part, he wasn't sure that he would go through with it. I mean, and I guess I can understand that because that just sounds absolutely batshit. For somebody to tell you they're going to blow something up. But then again, because it's so bad shit, you think you would tell somebody. <laughs> I don't know. It's like a vicious circle. Yeah. And by the way, McVeigh said nothing during this trial. I, I'm pretty sure that he didn't even get on the stand to defend himself because he has absolutely no quotes everywhere that I have seen says he said nothing until like the sentencing hearing or something like that. I'll get to it. But he said nothing during the trial. Uh. So closing arguments were made on May 29th, 1997. The district court charged the jury on May 30th, 1997. On June 2nd, after four days of deliberation, the jury returned guilty verdicts on all 11 counts charged in the indictment. After the verdict, McVeigh tried to calm his mother by saying, Think of it this way. When I was in the army, you didn't see me for years. Think of me that way now, like I'm away in the army again on an assignment for the military. Um, Sure. The penalty phase of the trial commenced on June 4th, 97, and concluded with summations and jury instructions on June 12th, And on June 13, the jury deliberated for two days before returning special findings recommending that McVeigh be sentenced to death. Makes sense. Of course, his attorneys appealed almost immediately. And I believe up until his execution, they were appealing. After denying McVeigh's motion for a new trial, the district court accepted the jury recommendation. Yeah. On August 14th, 1997, and they sentenced McVeigh to death on all 11 counts. Before the sentence was formally pronounced by Judge Match, McVeigh addressed the court. This is the first and only time that he said anything during sentencing. Quote, I wish to use the words of Justice Brandis dissenting in Olmstead to speak for me. He wrote, our government is the potent the omnipresent teacher for good or for ill it teaches the whole people by its example that's all i have to say unquote he's basically just saying like you need to watch the way you treat your people because you're you're gonna you're leading by example like a parent right I can see that. Because McVeigh was convicted and sentenced to death, the state of Oklahoma did not file murder charges against him for the other 160 deaths. I would have. Straight up. Yeah, no shit. Isn't this one of the fastest times we've ever killed anybody back, though? I remember hearing somewhere that it's the fastest death sentence. Yeah, four years. I'm not entirely sure that anyone's ever been put to death that fast. I don't think so either because isn't there like at least usually well and I don't know in federal trials it might be different but 
There's usually mm. like at least 10 years in between there for like appeals and shit. There's like appeals and appeals and appeals, yeah. This was a federal trial, and I think this is the first federal trial that we have actually talked about. So I don't know. Yeah, and it's it, it was the first time a federal trial, like it's the first time they put someone to death in like 60 years or something, I think. 38 years. 38 years. Oh, maybe it happened in the 60s. His execution. Is that what I'm thinking? Yeah. His execution would be the first in 38 years within the federal prison system. Anyway. Yeah. So I think it was the, the last one that happened in the 60s. Yeah. I would really like to know who that was. Anyway. But I would have 100% went ahead and charged him with the other 160. Just just, just because I could. Like those people, I think, deserved to have their day in court but that's why i'm not a prosecutor because i'd be like prosecute them prosecute them prosecute everyone (laughs) oh yeah yeah after his trial there was a man lou michelle who one of the only people who ever got his confessions on tape and they did like a series. There's like boxes of tapes, but they were never heard or anything. I believe he used it to write that book you mentioned earlier, the official autobiography or whatever. Yeah. But for a long while, no one ever heard these tapes. I listened to the tapes and I have some information from them, basically all quotes. So in those tapes, he said that he did that, the bombing for the greater good that the Turner the Turner Diaries book taught him all he needed, along with his military background and his quote-unquote friends, to make an effective bomb. He just amplified the recipe by using more volatile fuel because he used racing fuel when he did it. He chose the date, April 19th, for the bombing, not only for the anniversary of the Waco fire, but the anniversary of the shot heard around the world, which he's referring to uh, 1777, which was the start of the Revolutionary War. He said that he, quote, didn't love his parents, that the only man he ever loved was his grandfather, Ed. Which is kind of sad because didn't you say that he had like a makeshift second set of parents? Uh, yeah. Their names were Liz and Jack McDermott. But I mean, he wrote he wrote them all the way up until his death. They wrote him in fucking prison, like he's still that sweet kid down the block. I don't. What are you wow. thinking? Anyways, his grandfather Ed lived like I want to say like five blocks away from him. And he would go down there and visit him all the time. But, I mean, yeah, again, we're talking about a completely different person. Because he's got these two... He's like two-faced. He's got these two sides. This is another one of his quotes. This one gets to me. The rules of engagement, if not written down, are defined by the actions of an aggressor. What rules of engagement would you interpret in examining Waco? Kids are fair game. Women are fair game. With Oklahoma City being a counterattack... I was only fighting by the rules of engagement that were introduced by the aggressor. Waco started this war. Hopefully Oklahoma would end it. End quote. You know, like the law of war, like it's rules of engagement. No, because I don't. I know. I know. Um, It's United. It's a U.S. forces thing. It's ROE. Yeah. The rules of engagement. Anyways, um, that's that's where he's pulling that shit from. And I would assume that if you've been in the military at all, you would know what the rules of engagement are. So you would yes. determine, yes. military person listening to this, if that is warranted or not. My brother's going to text me about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love to know his feelings about it, honestly. So he also said that he had no problem sleeping in the truck that held the bomb on the way to the bombing location. Because he had to cross state lines. And he, he was driving it from the Junction City, Kansas, all the way to Oklahoma City. And he would have to pull over at times, you know, and like sleep on the way there. According to him, he had no problem sleeping right next to that bomb. He said he was, quote unquote, at peace. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Right? <laughs> Such a... I just like... Oh, what a demented person. Trying to like interpret or take in what this man was thinking is literally shutting my brain down. <laughs> well, 
like he couldn't even determine what he was thinking. He's sad about it. He's remorseful. He's not sad. It happens every day. Like these, these are the roller coasters of Timothy McVeigh's little tiny Dumbo weird yeah. head. Well, and and okay, this is the one that really gets to me. So if I if I need a minute, you just have to bear with me. Okay. Of the bombing casualties, he said, "Quote: People die every day." We have plane crashes where 100 to 200 people die, and those are unexpected losses. We have to accept it and move on. I have no problem looking at the victims and saying, you aren't the first mother to lose a kid. You're not the first grandmother to lose a grandson. Get over it. End quote. Uh, man, fuck you. Okay, well, you take a minute to catch your breath. That is not the fucking same. There is no logic in that whatsoever. You took human lives. The airplane is a tragic accident. You are a tragic accident. I fucking hate the fact that this person became this person. You taking, you taking, okay, it's a tragedy all the way around. 200 people in a plane crash, absolutely fucking terrible. 168 people that you took on purpose, had a plan, spent money, drove hours and hours to do this. That's not the fucking same. No. At all. That is on purpose. Yeah. 100% agree. He's out of touch with reality. Terribly. And he can't see what, what such a hypocrite he is. And that, that's what yeah. gets me is that how can you not see how what you have done is the exact same thing that you have persecuted the government over doing at Waco? It's the exact same thing. You can't tell me that an accident and retaliation are the same level no. of like tragic death. And for you to say, get over it. <sighs> if someone's life was taken because of an accident, that's hard to process. If someone's life is taken because of malice and spite. And retaliation. Yes, that was completely fucking unnecessary. 100%. I'm right there with you. I mean, he obviously felt no remorse whatsoever. So It was childish. Tell us about the letters to his sister. He had written letters to his sister when stating something big was going to happen. She, whenever they went to talk to her, she was caught burning a stack of papers in a barbecue grill. What? Uh, yeah. They thought she might have known it was going to happen, but she was granted immunity in exchange for cooperating with the prosecution as a hostile witness. Wow. That's insane. If my brother did something like that, I don't think I'd have anything for him anymore. You yeah. Know? Like, I just don't, I don't, I don't know where my loyalties would lie there. I mean, obviously like, you are not the person I thought you were. Yeah, no, not the, not the person I love. Right. Not, I don't know. I don't know that person. That's just. Or you're just, he's brainwashed you just as oh, much yeah. because he, you know, they talked about him just getting his sister into this sort of same thing. So maybe she's just on board with it. Like, hell yeah, you're doing the right thing. Kill 168 mm, innocent people that had no. nothing to do with Waco. I don't know. I mean, I know that that would have to be a really, really, really hard thing uh, for a family member to have done something like this. I don't know either. And then to have to sit on the stand and testify against them. That's just like what we were talking about, the Bevers trial. To have to be on the stand and look them in the eyes and speak your truth. And it is the truth, but, you know, that's not their truth. That's not the defendant's truth. Yeah, he's, you can tell he was never wrong. I mean, it's just got to be really hard. Yeah. So on July 13th, 1999, Timothy McVeigh was transferred to the death row unit in Terre Haute, Indiana. It was a federal unit. And on July 11th, which was two days later, he was brought to the death chamber. When asked what he was feeling on the gurney... He said, contentment and peace. I just, oh, he's, oh. People from all over the world congregated outside the prison to see it through and to celebrate his death. Do you remember, like, I don't know if you've seen any footage of the execution of Ted Bundy. Oh, God, yeah. They were like, 
It was like cheerleaders for the Beatles outside. It was exactly like that for McVeigh's execution. There were people oh, yeah. outside that had that were making t-shirts. There were people that were holding up signs and there were people who were like celebrating and like which I get it. I get it. But I don't think the decent thing to do is to mm-hmm. celebrate a death. Mhm. Like, right there with you. I I think you got what you deserved. I re- we've brought up killing him 168 times. Yeah. But I'm not going to stand there and chant and you know scream and woohoo and exactly. say rude things about it. Like exactly. We're sitting here talking about how answering answering for a death with other deaths is not right. Yeah. Meanwhile, talking about how we want to kill him 168 times. <laughs> it's because it's it's hard decision to make. It's hard to yeah, know. But like, you're you're no longer an innocent person. Yeah, you have killed 168 innocent people. You right. lost your rights to be treated like a decent human being. Yeah, the minute you fucking detonated that bomb. Oh yeah. So am I gonna woohoo and be happy about it? No, it's sad. It's tragic that your life came to this because you fought for my freedom. Oh yeah. And how many freaking medals did you get? Like you were a war hero. A bronze star. Yeah. I would, you're the kind of person that I would shake hands with and respect. Absolutely. Um, and it came to this. Yeah. You, be- you became what I fucking hate about the world. I just don't, I don't understand that. Mm-hmm. I also don't think that it's, I know that your rights as an American say that you can do that. You can congregate outside and you can protest and you can, you have the right to assembly and that's all well and good. But me, I'm right there with you where I'm like, I just don't think that that is something out of decency that we should do. I completely feel the same way. No. So, McVeigh invited Kate McCauley and Lou Michelle, which was the man who recorded his confession tapes, to witness his execution. Kate reports that he looked at her and mouthed the words, it's okay, just before. And at 7.14 a.m., June 11, 2001, he was executed by lethal injection. More than 200 survivors and the victim's families witnessed the execution on closed circuit television. So they kind of like had this live television feed going that was just for them. There are three deaths that I remember absolutely 110% vividly, and they're Timothy McVeigh, Saddam Hussein, and Osama bin Laden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very important days. He was 33 years old when he was executed, and he made no last statements. He had no final words. Oh, my God. His ashes were spread in an undisclosed location. 33. Gosh, that's, that's I'm 33 right now. I feel like I haven't even lived my life, really. Like, I'm just I'm still just getting started. You're yeah, you're so young. I mean, no, like, I don't I don't necessarily I don't mean to be biblical about this, but that's how old Jesus was. Look at the amount of good or the amount of damage you can do in that many years. Actually, yeah, you you know that I'm not religious, but actually I like I really like that comparison actually because you can do so much good or you can wreak so much havoc in just 33 yeah. years. So, I condone it. <laughs> <laughs> On May 26th, 2004, Terry Nichols was convicted of 161 counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to 161 consecutive life sentences without parole in the Federal Supermax Prison in Florence, Colorado. Michael Fortier was sentenced to 12 years in prison for failing to warn authorities about the impending attack. And in 2006, after serving 10 and a half years, Fortier was released for good behavior. He is now in the witness protection program under a new identity. Oh my God. Yeah, so you could know him. I could know him. I know. No. Yeah. You slimy weasel worm. Mm hmm. Okay, the other side, we've talked about my Gemini brain. The other side of him not speaking up. So, say you were in the military and in, I, I don't want to go too much into Desert Storm 
or the yeah. Gulf War or anything like that. But there are certain things that the military, the government ordered the military to do that were not right, that were really fucked up. Right. Anyways, some kind of like Vietnam, some of those guys came back not okay. And some there are still men in the military that end up being a little on the anti-government side of things. Not anti-military, not anti-patriotism. It's actually the fact that the government is controlling your rights that they have a problem with. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, yeah. I fought for I fought for this constitution and you're right. not fucking holding up to the constitution that I'm fighting for. Like, I risk life and limb and watch other people lose life and limb. Right. And you're yeah. fucking it up. So anyways, excuse all the, pardon all the F words. I got, I get amped up whenever it comes to military stuff. I'll work on that. Anyways, <laughs> so he, he is part of this brotherhood who a lot of them, once they start, looking into things it's just like any hobby you know you're gonna you're gonna your vibe attracts your tribe kind of thing mm -hmm. so there's probably a lot of like preppers a lot of anti-government a lot of maybe white supremacy a lot you know a lot of really 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 far out there people yeah and so maybe he's heard so much of this talk that he didn't necessarily take it seriously yeah a lot of people can sit around and co-conspire. Like, I would do this or I would do that. Like, you and I have jokingly talked about the best way to murder someone and get away with it, you know? <laughs> Don't tell them that. <laughs> but that. I mean, what? <laughs> that doesn't fucking mean that we're going to do it. It's just right. talking about it, you know? Right. But it's like some guys you would sit around and hear some things, and I wouldn't think, oh, uh, maybe I should alert the feds, you know? Right, yeah. Yeah. And then we look back and think, Hello, how is that not a red flag? You hear it all the time. It's like second nature. Like I was saying, it's kind of like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, because there's nothing is concrete. If you go to them and you tell them, like, he is planning on doing this, but, you know, it's just all talk, then you've ruined someone's life. <laughs> but, you know, if there is merit to it. Yeah, because he had all of his shit hidden in, like, um... What's like sheds and storage and stuff? Yeah. So how could you? How could you even prove it, anyways? So it's it's one of those things. A, a lot of decisions you have to make in your life, regardless of what they are, are literally case by case basis. A decision that he didn't make, and a lot of people died. All right. Guess he did technically make a decision not to tell anyone. But yeah, I mean, I can see how how he could think that maybe it's just all talk. My name is Amanda Newland Davis, and I run Oklahoma Cold Cases along with my partner Jen. At Oklahoma Cold Cases, we try to shine light on the cases of the missing, murdered, and unidentified that otherwise don't get much media attention. For the last four years, we've existed solely on Facebook, sharing the posts of the missing, murdered, and unidentified of Oklahoma. But this past year, we've branched out and started a database in which we list all of the names of every cold case that is in Oklahoma that we are currently aware of. You can find us at oklahomacoldcases.org. I would also like to take a minute to let you know about our podcast, which is called The Throwaways. It is about the Lawton serial killer, which is a series of unsolved killings considered to be by the same killer, which took place roughly between 1999 and 2003 in Lawton, Oklahoma. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I'm going to talk about the memorial. Almost every marathon is normally like a 5K or a 10K. Yeah. You can sign up for one or the other. Right. And then, you know, you get your t-shirt and your number and your, like, medal and all that kind of stuff. Like, it's not, I don't think it's anything different than any other marathon. And I'm sure going by, maybe they start off at the memorial or something, you know. Yeah. Maybe they're there, say a prayer or whatever. Um, our, one of my best friends that I played softball with, she does it, so... And it is, it's done every year, and it's a run-to-remember memorial marathon. I think the news that they got was that it's uh, going to be rescheduled for October, I think. Okay. And also, I think we forgot to mention that this year will be the 25th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. So it's been 25 That's years. Insane. 
That's crazy. Yeah, it really is. Let's talk about the memorial where the building stood. Now there is a memorial museum on top of those grounds. Like we were saying earlier, there are several, a couple walls that are still standing. They kind of built this museum and uh, memorial area on top of this. So within the walls of the Memorial Museum, there are artifacts, interactive displays, and videos that lend themselves to a self-guided tour that visitors can take to learn about the events of the day, the people affected, the investigation, and the overall resiliency of hope. The Memorial Store will have new items commemorating the 25th anniversary year and the Memorial's Looking Back, Thinking Forward campaign. So they have like these uh, like little tokens that you can purchase that are actually kind of neat. Adjacent to the museum is the Outdoor Symbolic Memorial, where the Murrah Building once stood are now symbolic elements honoring all who were touched directly or indirectly by the bombing, including the field of empty chairs, the survivor tree or the hope tree, survivor wall, reflecting pool, rescuers, orchard, and the children's area, and also the gate of time. And the original flagpole is still in use. That's crazy. <laughs> the flag, the flagpole? was not was untouched that's crazy in an ironic turn of events yeah what would you say is the first thing that you notice when you walk into the memorial it's the pool and the the walls at each end with the 901-903 right the those are the gates of time so when you enter the memorial grounds visitors pass through one of two immense gates and I'm going to share photos in our group. So if you if you want to see some of these photos and some newspaper clippings and stuff like that, come join our group or the Sirens group on Facebook. And you can see some of this stuff that I'm posting for you. So you won't have to like look it up yourself. You can just see exactly what we're talking about. So when you walk into these structures, they have these words. We come here to remember those who were killed. Those who survived and those changed forever. May all who leave here know the impact of violence. May this memorial offer comfort, strength, peace, hope, and serenity. The Eastern Gate, which has 901 on it, represents the last minute of innocence and a perceived sense of security for Oklahoma City, the state of Oklahoma, and the United States. The Western Gate, which has 903 on it, is the minute after the attack. It's a tribute to the human spirit and our ability for resilience in the face of tragedy, adversity, and fear. These gates symbolically frame the memorial in the minute of 902, a minute of change, devastation, the minute of the explosion. After the bombing, we were able to come together both as a community and as a country during the rescue, rebuilding, and healing process. And in between those two gates is the reflecting pool. The pool reflects all that has changed as a result of the attack. Symbolically, it represents the limitless impact of the event. Our own reflection in the pool leads us to contemplate how different the world we live in today is from that of 1995. The pool sits where Northwest 5th Street once ran. It's the same street that McVeigh drove down to access the front of the building and parallel parked the Ryder truck containing the explosives on the north side of the building. In respect for those lives lost, the street was closed forever. You also have the memorial fence, which that's the one that you were talking about earlier that was like almost immediately erected. It was limited to like a 20 block area, I think, that was affected by the blast. And the memorial fence protected the community from that dangerous area. And it was like littered with these notes and letters and teddy bears and all of these flowers, all of these things. And it became this spontaneous memorial 
individuals left items that helped them to begin their healing process or that might help others to begin their healing process. In the years since the bombing, over 60,000 items have been removed from the fence and placed in the archives of the Oklahoma City National Memorial and Museum. Items are still being left in honor and memory of this event as well as for subsequent tragic events. The Oklahoma City National Memorial has evolved as a place of healing and memory for more than just the Oklahoma City bombing. You also have the new survivor wall, which is found at the east end of the field of empty chairs. And it holds the name of over 600 individuals who survived the attack. Survivors include those who were in a one block radius surrounding the building. Those names are inscribed on four granite panels that were originally located in the lobby of the building itself. And the panels hang on one of two original walls remaining from the Murrah building. You can also see the rescuer's orchard surrounds the survivor tree or the tree of hope. And it represents over, I believe, 12,000 rescue workers that participated in the rescue effort. There are three different species of trees honoring the men, women, and the rescue dogs who gave selflessly in the aftermath of bombing. The eastern red buds, the smaller trees nearest to the survivor tree, represent the Oklahoma responders. For Oklahomans, the choice was easy because the red bud is the state tree. The other trees that make up the orchard, there's the Chinese pistache and emmer maple. Those are not native to Oklahoma. These trees represent the rescuers that came from other states across the nation to serve in a time of need. Together, the trees are fruit and flower bearing, which represents the fruits of the rescuers' labor. In the middle of those trees, you have the survivor tree. It is a 100-year-old American elm that was actually there on the day of the blast. Amazing. It's known as the survivor tree because this elm is our most famous survivor. Across the street from the former building, the Murrah building in 95, the tree stood in a gravel parking lot. Standing between the Murrah building and the Journal Record building, there was nothing to shield the tree from the explosion. Severely damaged, the tree was not expected to survive. However, the tree was not a complete loss, and signs of life were soon discovered, still standing in the exact same location 25 years later. The tree became a symbol of the community and the nation's resilience. Like the survivor tree, Oklahoma and the United States suffered greatly, yet rebounded. I'm like having a really hard time here. We we effing love that tree. You would think the tree was like Betty White or something. Like there's something there's something incredible with that tree. It's like the, that tree from Avatar. It's like that's cute. But do you have a tree of hope? Oh yeah. As soon as you said the number nine oh two, I lost my shit for a minute. So I've just been over here sniffling. Sorry when it yeah. comes to editing time. <laughs> I'm doing my best. Okay. <laughs> I, know. I did my best. We should just talk like this. <laughs> The field of empty chairs lies within the footprint of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. 168 empty chairs, each etched with a name of a victim, stand as a reminder of the innocent lives that were lost. The emptiness of the chair expresses a sense of absence. The five western chairs separated from the larger group represent those not inside the building but who lost their lives as a direct result the other 163 chairs are arranged in a pattern of nine rows according to the floors of the building each person's chair is then listed in alphabetical order according to the agency in which they worked or were visiting the glass base of the chair which is gorgeous at night illuminates so pretty at night so pretty and it emphasizes those individuals names the light delivers comfort from and eliminates the fear of the darkness as a unit the empty chairs are arranged to represent the damage done to the building 
with the highest concentration of, of chairs near the center of the footprint to symbolically fill in the damage done to the building by the bomb. And as you look over the field, you will notice two sizes of chairs. The large chairs represent the adults and the smaller chairs represent the 19 children whose lives were taken. There's going to be a lot of you people out there who have never seen this and maybe have never even seen the damage, the building, like you don't, you know, you're not familiar with it. Um, We're going to post pictures in the group. The building is, um, whenever we talk about the chairs and we talk about the reflection pool and the huge monuments at each end with the, the time stamped on them, you think that it would be a grave feeling. You'd think that it would be almost haunting. It's serene. Seeing the building is haunting. Uh, it's terrible. It does not look like hope. But this is, like she said, it's serene. It's comforting almost. And it's almost like a strengthening thing. How I imagine it is, like if you imagine monks on the top of a mountain sitting in peace and silence and reflection, that's how I would describe this place. Like that's the the feeling of just serenity and peace and I don't know. It, it's and it's probably different for everyone. So right. The last area is the children's area. It's nestled in the rescuers' orchard, and it's a reminder of the important role children play from all across the United States and how they played this role in the rescue effort. They sent to those so intimately involved gifts of hope and encouragement in the form of cards, letters, teddy bears, tiles. Though the gifts were a small gesture, the children's area now stands in remembrance of the power of their efforts. Today, a small wall carved with an assortment of tiles designed by children from across the country stand along the children's area chalkboards laid out on the ground in the shape of oversized cards and letters are there to encourage children of all ages to leave their own messages of hope and comfort. In our library, there was a claw-footed bathtub. And if you read X amount of books, or if you read the book you were supposed to read that week, or, you know, you have these special points in class, you got to lay in that claw-footed bathtub during library time. There's tons of pillows and stuff in there. And you could just lay in the claw-footed bathtub all alone and read your book in peace. And it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. And they took that bathtub and they put it out in front of the office. And every single kid brought 168 pennies. And we dumped it into that bathtub. Oh, my heart. We made like huge cards and banners and rolled them up and sent them, you know, with everything. Like we're just constantly sending thank yous and all kinds. You know, it's just. Yeah. It's to hear that they nestled that into, what did they call it? The corn, the orchard? The rescuer's orchard. Yeah. The rescuer's orchard. Like I, I never really thought about perpetuating comfort and support when all these people show up from all over America to help your state. Mm -hmm. Whenever I was saying that it's humbling, it's a sign of everything is not okay, but it's going to be okay. And these people are here to do everything they can to help it be as okay as it possibly can be. Right. You're not just left alone to your own defenses. And Arizona is like, well, what if something happens over here? We're just going to stay home, you know, just in case. No, these people dropped every fucking thing and came to hold us up when we were falling apart. Yeah. And so to think, to see, like, as a child, that's what it looked like. Because every little boy that you know wants to be a fireman when they grow up, Mm -hmm. you know? And you see these firemen, all these men being absolute heroes. And you see comfort in that. You see a person you can trust. You see a person that saves a life. And so then the fact that not only is the image of them comforting you to think that all that stuff that you send them and pray for them and everything that you do with them and you're in the front of your mind, I imagine that was comforting too. And I never really thought about it because I wasn't an adult when this happened. Right. But now with what's going on in the world, I'm getting messages left and right. Like, please be careful. Please be safe. You know, we love you. Stay safe out there. Thank you for all you're doing. And you don't necessarily, you don't get that all the time. You don't get Mm -hmm. gratification 
or appreciation yeah. or, you know, you really don't. And that's not why you do it, but it's, no, it's nice God, to get. No. It's weird to think about. It makes you want to crawl in a hole because you're like, that's not... I just want you to have another birthday. That's all I'm here for. Yeah. Like, I will yeah. <laughs> anything to give you another Christmas to make sure you go home and hug your kids. That's what I'm here for. Exactly. Yeah. And so for other people, like I just never really thought about what it must have been like for them to know that everyone, you know, was just had them in their hearts constantly. Yeah. That's a new aspect for me. Yeah. I'm not going to cry. <laughs> well, I want to bring up the Garth Brooks song. He had a song called The Change. And while we cannot play it for you for copyright reasons, I am going to just read you some of the lyrics. Oh, and I've got that link to send you, unless you've already found it. There's a link where you can watch the video. Oh, yeah, I watched it. Oh, yeah, I watched it. I watched the video. I freaking cried like a baby i did too i locked myself in the bathroom and and his video as well has a bunch of footage so just be prepared when you watch the video because it does it does have a bunch of footage like raw footage from the day of the bombing and it can really get to you real quick i'm gonna read you some of the lyrics i'm already crying damn it (laughs) sorry i'm sorry one hand reaches out and pulls a lost soul from harm while a thousand more go unspoken for and they say what good have you done by saving just this one it's like whispering a prayer in the fury of a storm and i hear them saying you'll never change things and no matter what you do it's still the same thing but it's not the world that i am changing i do this so the world will know that it will not change me This heart still believes that love and mercy still exist, while all the hatreds rage, and so many say that love is all but pointless in madness such as this. It's like trying to stop a fire with the moisture from a kiss. And I hear them saying, you'll never change things, and no matter what you do, it's still the same thing. But it's not the world that I am changing. I do this so the world will know that it will not change me. What I do is so the world will know that it will not change me. I don't know how the fuck he gets through singing this song. Mm -mm. Because that's his hometown, you know? I don't know how he makes it through it. Actually, I think he did break down crying several times. Because I remember him singing it live. Remember they had that that fund or whatever, the video? Yeah. Like he sang it live. I don't remember. I mean, you think about times like, you know, what's happening outside in the world today. Of course, we're not under any sort of terrorist attack, but you can really take a look around the world in times like that and in times like these where you see the helpers, like you were saying, you can see people helping and not it's not just the health workers. Yes, you're a health worker. My husband's a health worker. My dad is a health care provider. But <laughs> but there are people at home, uh, you know, doing what they can to try to, you know, help. Um, I have a friend who messaged me. I was like, hey, is everything OK with your hands? You're having to stay gloved constantly. Is everything good behind your ears? Do you need lotion? Do you need moisturizer? You know, mm-hmm. just all the ones who are thinking of each other are doing such a great thing. You don't have to be out there on the front lines to matter and to do your part just like any other day of the week we are constantly saving lives we are constantly fighting for people who don't have the strength to do it for themselves this is nothing different than any other time i promise you you mattered before they sent you home right and none of us none of us can wait to see you back out in the world driving around cutting us off in traffic (laughs) But you're all helping so much just by staying home, first of all. But all these people that are doing so many things, you're just being so American. You're showing up in the hospital parking lot praying for us. You know, like, it's just, I bawled my head off at that. (laughs) It's such a great thing to see people lifting each other up and trying to lift each other's spirits up. And, you know, what is it? Hashtag alone together. Mm -hmm. you know 
continue to do that and continue to stay safe. If you are lonely and this is bothering you, we have brought up our friends who have depression and anxiety a whole, whole lot. You should FaceTime someone. We've been, yeah. we do it. Like me and my friends, there was like 10 or 10 or 11 of us on a phone call the other night. You could mm-hmm. do it through Facebook Messenger. You know what I mean? You could just sit somebody there like, just to be on your couch with you if you live at home alone just Mm. don't think that you have to sit there and watch your television and go stir crazy and be all alone because you don't and there are several apps that you can do that with um there is zoom and facetime and facebook messenger has video and google hangouts snapchat you can even video call someone and my friends and i have been using roll20.com to play our D and D online, and it, that comes with like little uh, video chats that we can, you know, play tabletop games with each other. So, yeah, the Oklahoma City bombing still represents the largest domestic terrorist incident within the United States to date. You've reached the end of our episode. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Join Raven next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?